no driving gloves sometime in 2023. Derek and I discussing automotive fads over the generations and is there still really one focus? All that after this. Gary. How are you doing, Derek? Terrible. How are you? <laughs> well, uh, I'm actually doing pretty good this morning. Well, seeing you, you, you know, you change things up on me. No, I'm, I'm doing good. I've had a, a good couple of weeks. So i uh, been doing some automotive things and that always makes me happy. Uh, sometimes automotive things have a way of doing that, don't they? They do. They do. Something about the sound of an engine running and... You know, also for me, I guess, sharing automotive history and talking about it, I, I say that because I just did a, a lecture at a, a NEH uh, conference for teachers that are trying to build their lesson plans and add in some automotive history and things like that. I had the chance to talk to two different groups of educators about automotive history. And it's always refreshing to me uh, after talking that there's actually questions. You know, had some great discussions about the history of the automobile and its use as both amusement and recreation. I I enjoy that. It is. It's one of the things I liked when I was more public and out and about in the world being asked and people taking interest, it kind of validates me. It, it makes you feel like you know what you're doing. It's shallow, but it makes makes it, it's rewarding for all the years you've put into this. And uh, to be honest, what seems like playing, at least to me, I've always felt like that. You know, people say, oh, I can't wait to retire to do what you do. Well, you know, back when I was at the museum restoring or anything, and I go, jeez, I've done this for 25, 30 years. I can't wait to quit and get into an office, you know? Yeah. But guess what? That's what I did. I, I lived my retirement when I was young, and now I just will end up working till the day I die because I didn't save a dime. <laughs> Is that the way we need to look at it? Is that I've, I've already done my retirement, and now I have to work? Yeah. You, did, you lived your life backwards, but it's the way it's supposed to be. I learned that a long time ago. There was an episode of Mork and Mindy where um, – Orkins, they are born at their maximum age. So when you're born as a native Orkian, from, you know, from Ork, you're born at like 78 years old and you live your life in reverse. You you grow younger. Isn't that the whole Benjamin Button movie? Yeah, but Benjamin Button, I believe, came out after that episode of Mork from Ork. Oh, yeah, I'm sure it did. So. But I'm just, <laughs> yeah. But that was the original premise, and you know, I can't remember. It's one of those famous stand-up guys or something that actually played the the baby that showed up on the. You know, he was in his seventies and get you know, as a baby. Well, that's something is very common. I ought to just make that a soundbite. I dig. I digress. Yes. Unless we're going to actually talk about the um, egg spaceships from Mork from Mork. Is that the topic? I was just going to say that we could talk about the spaceships, and that would make it. You know, somewhat themed. You know, back when I had my Mazda 5 and everybody in the household made fun of this white minivan kind of thing. And they would call it an egg. They called it an egg and they called it an egg. So I ended up getting the license plate for it, Orc Ship. Nice. Nice. Nobody and got it. Probably put that. <laughs> oh, that's sad. You could put that on any white car from the 1990s as well. It'd be great. Great on the. Uh, what was it? The the second redesign of the Taurus when it went to absolutely no straight lines. Yeah, that's the one I'm talking about. Yeah, the just the the bubble or the um, the Caprices because yep. the cops used to call those the egg cars. So. Yep. But no, you have to have the car white. Those literally may have been the. I'm going to say this and I'm going to offend somebody, but ugliest police cars ever made. I don't know. I might disagree. I'll probably be the one that's offended. Can you think of another 
police car that was just not good looking. Well, I was watching an episode of Forensic Files the other night in the hotel, and it was about... It's like 1983, and they were setting up for something with the Queen's visit uh, to, like, Yellowstone or Yosemite, or I think it was Yosemite, because she was going to visit, like, Reagan's ranch and then go visit Yosemite. And the Secret Service was on, had sent three cars to do some preliminary scouting, and there was this rogue sheriff's deputy, and somehow they came around the corner and hit virtually driver's side to driver's side head on and it ended up killing the three secret servicemen that were in their dodge aries k but he was driving like this 82 caprice i thought that was a horribly ugly car yeah yeah okay i'll give Uh, that too but was that actually was that just for the show or was that no they they had that and then they actually had a rep you know replica car it was very accurate to oh say that say the least but no that was the now when they were talking about the accident in the national accident investigation team they would show this picture lower picture and you get the logo of whatever like the los angeles county sheriff's department or whatever plus state a lot california whatever and then they had a taped on computer printout of the acronym for whatever department it was (laughs) couldn't have just got some vinyl stickers of course I, i don't know how old the episodes of forensic files are they obviously weren't ever recorded in a HD. But I thought that was an ugly cop car. And even when I um, look at the Caprices just prior to the Egg Caprice, I kind of think they look a little dated. You know, it's just, I guess, as time went on. Yeah. And of course, I do like the Tahoes because they always are nice and lowered and such. Well, yeah, the Tahoe's good. I came up with this topic. I don't know why. It just popped into my head that over the generations, there has always been like one custom car focus and i would probably say maybe going post world war ii i can't really think of anything pre-war but maybe you, you can help there because that was a lot of automotive development i think cars came into their own after world war ii but we had focus the, the teenagers and the young people and it even trickled up to the people in their 40s and 50s there were things they did with cars that almost everybody did and it was and then as the generations changed, this, these things changed. But I sat for hours the other day, and I can't think of a dominant customizing slash car trend that ex- has existed in, I would say, the last 10 years, that being the, the 2010s to now. And I listed some out in the pre-show notes to Derek of what I thought, but we'll get into that as we go through the show. But do you agree with me, Derek? Have we kind of waned a little bit, or am I just missing something? Uh, that's a good question, John. But I'm, I'll back up a little bit, you know. And and you're right. I mean, pre pre World War II, we were in such a development period of the automobile. There was there was really little going on in the let's call it aftermarket hobby world. And interestingly, this this locks right into the talk I just gave at the the conference because it was all about amusement and recreation. In other words you know, hobby things that you do with your automobile or, or watch other people do with automobiles. And really about the only thing that was happening before World War II was the creation of, you know, speedsters, right? Because by the late 20s into the 30s, you know, older Model Ts, things like that became the second, third car on the, you know, at home or on the farm. And the young kids started buying up get a little extra money, buy up a part to hop up the car and turn it into a speedster and go drive it around. So there's not a lot before World War II. But then, yeah, after World War II, that's when we get a lot of the hobbies starting up. You know, the the 1950s see the explosion of hot rodding and also just the restoration of antique vehicles. That's when those two things really take off. So those are the predominant fads, if you want to call them that, hobbies that are going on in that post-World War II era is, you know, the younger generation that now has a ton of mechanical knowledge, you know, going to the junkyard, grabbing some affordable uh, old vehicles and making hot rods. And then to me, the older generation that's starting to be nostalgic about 
the early cars that they saw when they were kids, right? Brass era stuff, classic era stuff. They're going to start buying those up what's left and restoring them. And then we move through the generations of, you know, different, different fads, different interests. I mean, even, even to the point where one of the things you and I talked about pre-show was the muscle car era becomes a thing, which is driven by the auto industry, right? Cause they start building these cars because they see the younger generation that's hot rodding and wanting more power and, and wanting fast cars. So why not build them what they want and, you know, bring out the muscle car era. But yeah, I think as we have gone through time right now, I, I can think of like a couple things, but to me, they're almost, um, I don't know if the word right word is localized, but they're, they're not, I wouldn't say they're, a broad fad across the entire hobby of antique cars or classic cars or even modern cars right there. It's, it's almost like a niche in certain areas of the country or world. Does that make sense? Yeah, I think so. It's a lot to take in there. I I try to do that. I know I get, I get carried away. Yeah, I know. But Hey, this podcast, you can back up and listen. If you're a listener, I really, hold on. Let me back this audio up. (laughs) (laughs) dissect what you said now i just see it as and i guess you could even go pre-war as you started i'm going pre-war it was that development stage of the automobile and well it wasn't necessarily teenagers doing it there was so much innovation and change and different thinking processes and you know at one point there were three thousand automotive manufacturers in the united states or over history there has been, and very over, few... Over history, yeah. Not at one time, but over history. The majority of those were pre-1940. Yeah, exactly. I mean, in the last episode, you made a reference to the the Owen Magnetic. You know, mm-hmm. that's just a, one of the many companies that, you know, really nobody's heard of. And we talked about Vili on an episode, and, uh, you know, Baker pops in here, and, of course, some of these are electric vehicles. And it's just, maybe that was what pre-war was was the innovation and the creation of the automobile so it could be what it became after world war ii such a defining turning point in a lot of history that that war i mean world war ii brings about so much change in technology and you know the ability of production right the way we produce things that impacts everything in the post-war era. I mean, there's so many things developed during the war that, you know, you see a whole new market of products in the post-war era. Just look at the auto industry, completely changed. And after that World War II, and that's kind of what I'm talking about, we distinctly had a hot rod speed culture develop. The, you know, think Greece, you had your high school kids that had their you know, Chevy, customized Chevys and T-Birds and things like that getting towards the late 50s and their hot rods and drag racing and racing for pinks and having the coolest car on the block for the girls and the older people, you know, that's where Moon Eyes was created and um, SoCal Speed Shop and those all came out of the 50s and that was the older, that's what I'm talking, the older people supporting that, that movement and that's how we ended up with sports cars as the returning soldiers. We've all heard the story with bunches of extra money and they could get their house and they'd get their wife and they'd have their family, but they still wanted that little sports car and they'd buy the sports car. So it became an era of customizing and modifying and finding speed. Amateur racing was new. The SCCA was new. To me, you had that culture and Everybody was involved in it. Like I said, from your high school kids to the kids, you know, your grade school people that wanted to grow up and be in high school and have this, you know, 55 Chevy with a blower, blah, 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 which was developed by the generation beyond the 30-somethings, Pete Samporis and um, Edelbrock and, you know, these people building. Huh? Don't forget Isky. Isky, Isky, yes. Ed Iskadarian, which he just celebrated, what, his 103rd, I think? Second, third birthday? Yeah. Amazing. Yeah. Yeah, because um, I believe Mark Green was talking about him. And, you know, Mark interviewed him 13 years ago when he was a young spry, 89 years old or something. 
uh, hopefully Mark can get him back on the show. But, I mean, you've got that generation. So it was all-encompassing. And do you disagree with me? Was it there was something that started to come? It wasn't a 1946 it happened, but it really started to creep in. You know, 49, 50, by 55, the, the kids were into it. and Yeah, no, I completely agree. You know, and it's... It is a lot of the the hot rod movement comes out of the the returning soldiers, young guys who now have mechanical abilities because they had to work on stuff in the military. Uh, a number of them, they might you know have come home and and there was a faction that they they you know, they didn't have a lot of money to buy everything right. They they got their house, they started their life. Cars were still kind of. I mean, cars have always been an expensive purchase, right? It's even, you know, the Model T, okay, yeah, it became an affordable car, but there was still a lot of America that couldn't afford it. You know, a lot of these guys were like, well, I need some kind of transportation. It's more affordable to go buy a car out of the junkyard. I know how to fix it. I can hop it up a little bit. That's how that hot rod nature was born. So you add to that to the fact you've got all these 20 to, say, 25-year-olds getting out of World War II, and they survived World War II. I mean, how you know, all of their, you know, a lot of their friends had passed away. They'd seen people die. But you were invincible. You, you could put up with speed. You, you weren't, you know, you could build this fast, crazy jalopy or sit in a, you know, fuel tank from a, you know, fighter airplane or something and put a huge motor in it because, you'd survive the war. What, what could kill you if the war couldn't mm-hmm. kill you? There was that feeling of invincibility. Mm-hmm. And that's a feeling that I think every kid has. But usually by the time you're into your early 20s, mid 20s, that feeling starts to wane. But now you have people that came straight out of their invincible stage that went to war and then survived war. And what better statement to saying you're invincible than surviving a war, no matter what which war you're talking about. So I think that that helped accelerate and push that culture. Of course, as time goes on, kids don't want to do exactly what their parents did. And then again, certain people became a little bit more successful and had a little bit of power, but still had that thinking that they're invincible. And particularly, I'm speaking of John DeLorean and Lee Iacocca. You know, nothing was going to derail them. And DeLorean was always a very flamboyant, over-the-top, type-A personality, and, of course, created the GTO, or slid the GTO into Pontiac's um, (laughs) catalog. You can go back, though. Chrysler, the 300B, the 300C were kind of the, quote, first muscle cars, big motors and fast cars that nobody really thought of until they got them and they realized but pontiac and delorean were really the first ones to really throw it into your face of course wasn't the 63 galaxy wasn't there a pretty hot version of that or something like that and yeah i mean it was it was really like you say with with chrysler and the hemi that's what kicks it off you know that 300b especially running in nascar the ability that car had but yeah and then other companies start following suit. GTO just kind of gets the recognition because it was kind of the first purpose done, right? I mean, DeLorean was like, look, we're this is intentional. <laughs> we're not just building something just to sneak it out there. We're doing it, and, and we're putting it in your face. I think it's he slipped it through just the way we did with everything prior to that. But once it was out there, he let it be known why it was out there. Exactly. You know, Tiger in your tank and everything, and Iacocca saw it and embraced it, credited with creating the Mustang. Uh, even though that's not a muscle car, that's a pony car. But that pony was car. giving you that muscle car and that power in a slightly smaller package, afford more slightly more affordable package, maybe. Yeah. And of course, we ended up with the muscle car wars and the pony pony wars through the '60s. And again, everybody was behind it. The kids longed to have these cars. The people in their mid-20s, early 30s bought these cars. The, uh, even the police bought them and, you know, would race them. And, or cops would buy them and in their off-duty time would race them. There's wasn't that the 70 or 72 Charger that was the Black Ghost or something. I can't remember. Yeah, the, 
that I think that's yeah. But the the Detroit police officer that raced it on Woodward. Yep. And I mean that culture was there, and you you know you had all like I said all these high horsepower and crazy performance and go fast and I don't know it's zero to sixty times, but you know it was quarter mile times and dead man's curve and it was definitely again a car culture, but radically departed in what was popular 10, 15 years prior in the, the 50. And, this, you know, they see the story going on and on. And, of course, all of a sudden, 1974 or 73, OPEC fuel crisis, boom, performance goes away. Can't afford to be dumping all this 25, 35 cent a gallon gas into a car that's only getting three or four miles a gallon with this huge performance. To me, the, the culture turned a little bit. And I don't know if it was kind of the sliding out of that Woodstock freedom era or what brought it on. But wasn't that, correct me if I'm wrong, the next big car phenomena was vanning. Probably. I would agree with that. So I I guess that that's kind of an interesting thought because we, even in pre-show work, we talked about you know, hot rods into and, and restoring cars and then moving into the muscle cars. Really, I guess the mid, late and 70s and early. Well, no, because the vanning does come out in the late 70s. That's I guess that is when when that kind of fad starts, isn't it? Yeah. So there's there's a little downtime there during the OPEC crisis, probably when there's there's not a certain fad going on. Well, you've always but got two vans kicking. You've always got two or three years where you know, I think OPEC threw this in and you, you had to find your way. Right, right. You got to kind of figure out what's next. While vans were still atrocious gas mileage, they were still better gas mileage than your super high performance, you know, blown Hemi. They had room, you know, you could go out and you could camp or overnight or it's kind of what people are trying to do we're trying to do over COVID these, you know, van- vanners, but they were doing it with their shag carpets and radically styled, you know, vans, tandem axles, stretch, chop, the fiberglass, high roofs, side pipes, ever, you know, you could really, I think that was the first time we really could express ourselves exterior wise on a production vehicle. And I think it was also the beginning of, I want to say fiberglass body parts, mail order. You get out your J.C. Whitney catalog, get your louvers for your rear window, get your ground effects or arrow or body kit, whatever you want to call it in the 70s. You know, the stuff they did to vans was, it was really remarkable in the thinking and the creative process. And so, you know, some of these vans are worth a fortune today. Some of them. Yeah, if you can find an original one, they're really going. But yeah, and it's interesting because actually I've, you know, talked to my dad about this who started in you know body shops in 71 72 as he's getting out of high school figuring out what what to do with life in the late 70s and into that early 80s period he was he was one of the guys painting murals on the side of those vans i mean it was just it was where the money was at the time to do those things and so he would airbrush murals of things on vans. Uh, He did a couple of his buddies' semis at the time. Yeah, it was a big thing. Yeah, semis, Smokey and, oh, I think think it was Smokey and the Bandit and that that mural on their semi. And and vanning to me gave way getting into the 80s. I think vanning ended up transitioning to mini truck. You disagree? You know, I don't know a lot about the mini truck culture. We just had a host that was into mini trucks. What? A host that was into the mini trucks. Yeah, that's you. <laughs> Looking at the history of it, yes. I mean, we, we moved from the vanning into uh, really the mini trucks becoming the next big thing. And, th- and I think that was done all about it, out of the affordability. You know, mini trucks were half the price of a full-size van. Minivans didn't quite exist yet. Right. As we started to, you know, get into the Datsun, bullet-side Datsuns and the Nissan uh, 720s and the Chevy Love and the Ford Couriers and those trucks could be had for next to nothing. I remember an ad from Kick 104 and Spike O'Dell out of the Quad Cities talking about the Azuzu pickup for 83 or 84. It was like the lowest priced car in America at the time. And you could pick the thing up for 49.95. 
payments were like 99 bucks a month. It just allowed a blank canvas that they could take some of their vanning stuff too. And we, you know, we got the ability to lower. I guess we skipped all the lowrider craze, but that's kind of been ongoing um, and really the Latin culture since as long as I can remember. So, yeah, that's true. Forgive me that we've overlooked the lowriders and you ended up with, you know, your lowered trucks. And of course, by the end of the decade, People had figured out, hey, these are body on frame. We can cut the top off. You can have convertible trucks. And we got into our engine swaps. And these are big canvases to stick our car stereos in. And I think the mini trucks overlapped with the huge booming car stereos. You know, cars drive by with the booming system. It's a LLJ someone. Oh, definitely. Definitely. You know, you can take you can take a blazer and throw a ton of speakers in the back and kind of brought I think that's what kind of brought the minivan even into the mini truck scene is you can get an Astro van and, you know, slam it and kind of can do some of your vanning stuff to it. And some of the coolest ones I saw had the sub boxes recessed into the floor. So they didn't take away any interior space or you could end up building this huge fiberglass enclosure in the back that took up most of the van and oh yeah, I remember those. hit sound pressure levels that were exceeding, you know, uh, 747 at takeoff and, damaging hearing have to replace your windows with lexan because the glass would shatter yeah those days i, I used to buy a lot of uh, my star car stereo equipment from uh, sound of peoria and they used to have and i'm sure this sticker was everywhere but if your mirrors ain't shaking you've been taken oh and and that was so true and really if it wasn't the guys next to use mirrors for shaking you've been taken you know that was the whole <sighs> point is you wanted to be heard miles away Maybe that's what started to kill this because we started to get these sound laws that you couldn't be heard more than 50 feet from your car. And, excuse me, damn Harley Davidson, I can hear more than 50 feet from my car. Car stereo on a Harley Davidson. Let's forget that pipe save lives. That started to squash a little bit of that. And then, of course, things go on. I think we started to take some of that stuff a little bit too far. And some of it was legislated out. I think the mini trucking craze followed. And once the mini truck in and the car stereo craze stuck around and I mean, I ask it and that's still here. It's been around since the early eighties and there's still competitions today, but it, it died down uh, mainly, I think because of the, the loss and you start getting these 50 and hundred dollar tickets back when 50 and hundred dollars was a lot of money. Mm -hmm. I'm not saying that to be arrogant or anything. 50 and a hundred dollars was a lot of money. It used to be, you know, a $20 bill was kind of your everyday thing. Now, $100 bill, everything costs 100 bucks now. Yeah, no kidding. $100 back then was your Zuzu payment. Yeah, I just said that. Yeah. <laughs> I think some of the legislation heard it, but the trucks started to get more expensive and people started to pay attention to the trucks. And then when we really got into safer vehicle, Chevrolet, the, this the mini trucking craze was so big when they redesigned the S10 for uh, 94 they made Chevrolet made a conscious effort. They were not going to change any of the suspension, drivetrains, framework, so that the aftermarket wouldn't have to redesign parts for the new truck. You can take the sp drop spindles off an 82 S10 and put them on a 99 S10, and they'll work. And I thought that was a brilliant idea. Whether that was the 100% truth behind it, I'm sure it saved GM a fortune. Not redesigning suspension and frame, but it allowed that truck to carry on and become stay popular. But when they did that redesign, rollover standards were being considered and the rolling over of vehicles. And at that point, you can no longer really cut the roof off of a truck because you damage so much of the crash worthiness of it. Mm -hmm. And our convertible trucks kind of went away. I mean, convertible trucks, their heyday would be really... What am I thinking? 80 to, well, I've seen bullet side dots. And so 74 to 92, you can do convertible pickups. I think that started to slip into the hot rod Honda and the import scene. Oh, definitely. Definitely. I mean, the, the, and it's interesting because, you know, we also, we're, we're now at a point where, you know, I would say pre, let's call it pre 1980s. Or let's let's use the 1980s as maybe the the dividing time, that dividing a decade 
of really everything before that is that's going on in the U.S. is pretty much American auto industry based, right? The hobbies, everything that's going on, whether you're hot rodding or uh, vanning or mini trucking or even go over to the racing scene and, you know, all your SCCA, you know, guys building race cars, jump over to the, you know, where I grew up in the northern Midwest, Michigan, a big, big thing is lifted trucks, you know, four-wheel drive, you know, mutter trucks, lifting, off-road, all that. But you're really doing it with all American auto industry. But in the 80s, you know, the 70s with OPEC, you know, we start seeing, you know, a conscious effort from foreign car manufacturers to get into the U.S. market and have an import, you know, import world in the U.S. And so that 80s to 90s, you know, the mini truck fads, the lowering, uh, all the, the customizing that's being done. Now, right, people, people from that world are jumping over and seeing the import market and these little import cars that they can do a whole bunch of fun stuff with. And so, yeah, I think you're right. I think it's going to jump into, or I think it does jump into the import market and, you know, all of that. No, you think you're right. The imports started to make their way over in the mid-70s. A lot of the mini truck craze was built on those early Japanese trucks because there were no compact uh, American trucks until 82 when the Ranger and the S10 were introduced. You know, the Datsun 210 and 510 became very viable SCCA cars in the late 70s. You're right. You started that. That's that transition. I think you started to get the imports. The trucks took off a little bit quicker because, like I said, the vans became too expensive. The trucks were in, inexpensive. They gave a good canvas to build off of. And then you got the reliability out of the Japanese in the late 70s and the early 80s. And I think the turning point in starting to get us to look at the sport compact market would be the Volkswagen GTI in 82 and 83. No doubt about it, that made an impact. Go-kart handling and fun for next to nothing. And the Honda CRX, when it came out in 84 and really came into its own in 85 when the SI edition reduced. I think those two cars really launched the sport compact scene. Things happened quickly. Back in the 80s and into the 90s, Honda was on a four-year cycle. Every four years, their vehicles would change. Every four years, their vehicles would change. So it didn't take long for the other Japanese manufacturers to react. You know, the 300Z went really upscale in 84, and by 90, they had totally revamped the car and brought it back to a little bit more of a sports car. Uh, the Corvette was a bit anemic in the, the mid-80s. You know, I think that's kind of where that started and began the transition. The mini trucks were really popular, and the transition became came to the sport compacts, and you had a little bit of blur there in the mid-90s until a certain gentleman and a certain movie chain came out. And that, that's all she wrote. Of course, we're, I'm referring to the late Paul Walker and the Fast and Furious franchise. The original Fast and Fast, The Fast and the Furious from the 50s was a great movie. Fast and Furious uh, is a late, well, I can't remember what year did Fast and Furious come out. Was that 2000? Was that 99? Late 90s, early 2000s. That's what I'm going to say. I, I don't remember. Fast and Furious, 2001. 2001. All right. What a year. Great year. Great year. And by then, I really think the sport compact scene was hot because, you know, in the mid-90s, I was doing all my stuff with CRXs and such. And heck, you know, by 2000, I had my engine swap CRX, et cetera, and lowered and 17-inch wheels. And Fast and Furious validated. And I think it made it okay to have a car like this and, of course, brought so many people to the hobby. Was that my problem in the late 90s and early 2000s? Because that's when I had my 74 GTO, being, you know, and I was restoring it and driving it. Well, you've always been a little bit off the beaten path. Uh, a little? <laughs> <laughs> I'm like five miles into the woods. <laughs> you and your hot rod 1919 Chevrolet with its uh, fabric clutch or whatever that is. No, no. The hot rod is the 1912 Hupmobile, remember? Oh, yeah, 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 yeah. And your little pocket car you've got. Yeah, but I don't remember if, if we've mentioned it on the show or not, but 
sorry, self-promotion here. Great article uh, by a, a friend of mine that works for Hemmings and Hemmings Classic Car on the Hupmobile uh, back in, I can't remember which issue it was. I have it sitting out on the desk, June or July of this uh, 2023. And uh, we we did a little article on the, the Hupmobile and what we're doing with it and a little of its history. So just, just throwing that out there. Going back to our pre-war, the about the only thing that was going on, making speedsters and either dirt racing or hill climbing them. That's what the the Hupmobile was. Sorry, I had to throw that in there, John. But it's interesting because I think going back to what we're talking about, you know, we got the sport compact thing going on and it's, it's still popular today. I mean, there's, you know, today there's still, I think a big, big part of the automotive world that is, is into the sport compacts and, and the fast and furious stories. You know, I think that's a, that's a strong one. See, and that's where I disagree. Now, maybe it's my age and what I do, you know, I don't necessarily hang out at 11 o'clock at the bars all the time. As I said earlier, we ended up with car stereo laws. We ended up running all the cruise nights out. There's nowhere to go cruise. It's tough to mingle in a parking lot anymore without getting a lawyering ticket. We clamped down so much on this car culture, it made it hard to have a car culture. Back in the vanning craze, the muscle car craze, the hot rod craze of the 50, the mini trucking craze, the sport compact craze of the early to mid 90s, everywhere you went, you saw one of these vehicles for their time period. You know, depending on the time period, there was always a custom van in the 70s. If you went to the grocery store, if you went to the shopping mall, if you went to the drugstore, whatever you did. These cars were predominant. They were out. You saw them. Many trucks were everywhere in the you know late 80s, early 90s. Sport compacts, the same way. Everywhere you went, you saw them. But now, I go days without, and weeks without seeing anything that's out of the ordinary. You know, that's not, you know, that even has a coffee can exhaust on it or is radically lowered or... I guess the biggest thing, maybe the thing now is lifted. Everything I see anymore is lifted and well, stanced if you don't have a lot of money. Yeah, I was going to say, I mean, it's it's probably just because you live in Alabama, John. I mean, my drive to work to Nashville, I, I see everything you just lifted, uh, listed. Lifted, lifted trucks, right? Stanced, sport compact imports. Heck, it wasn't a couple months ago. I heard a coffee can muffler ripping down the freeway, and it was a Chevy Cobalt. Okay, uh, I remember racing a Chevy Cobalt. <laughs> but and and maybe it's regional. Maybe correct me, and and maybe some of our listeners can, because I don't know if it's going on all around the country. But I see it heavily here, and let's say in the the southeast of the United States. But the famous Carolina Lean where it's trucks and things are squatted in the back and lifted in the front. Well, I guess that's what I meant when I said stanced. I used the wrong term, but which is the dumbest thing you can do to a vehicle. It doesn't make sense. And it's like you couldn't afford the Well, that's the that's because we're old, John. Well, you can See, to the young kids, it makes sense, just like Vanning did and mini trucks back when you were a kid. And old people thought, well, that doesn't make any sense. When we vanned, we were okay. When we mini-trucked, we were okay. When you stance a vehicle and you put it at this 15-degree, 20-degree angle, you can't see out the front. Your headlights illuminate the highways on the moon, and all the oil in the vehicle goes to the back of the engine. You don't need oil, John. What are you talking about? (laughs) So, I mean, it's... You know what? It's going to be perfect in all these electric trucks though you don't have to worry about oil i'm true very very true what you said though is what my point kind of my point is we have the carolina lean we have the lifted trucks you see lower trucks you see i guess you didn't say but maybe you see some custom vans you see the sport compacts you see all of them there's not one focus maybe the world's just too big and it's everybody has too many interests or maybe it's youtube that's kind of what I was thinking. Is it just that we have such a, such we're now at a point where we have such a plethora of options in the automotive aftermarket world 
and options of what type of vehicles we can own that we have now just this, you know, and I, I think it's a good thing. Everybody has their own interest, right? And it's like we always say with, you know, car guys, stop going to the car shows and griping about the guy that's three cars down from you because it's, you know, it's a import that's been, you know, slammed down to the ground and, you know, uh, all, you know, everything's set up and, you know, big, you know, big rims and all the, you know, everything that's done there and, and stop complaining about the guy that's, you know, three cars down the other way. Cause it's a lifted truck. That's been all, it's all part of the car hobby and we all have a passion for cars. We just do it differently. Yeah. I'm going to roll into the show in my horseless carriage puttering along and get strange looks because I always do. And that might not be because of the car I'm driving though. Uh, anyway, we're all car passionate, right? We're all in this because we love the automobile. So, you know, to me, it's a good thing. Why have one certain fad that is the predominant driving force? Let it be open to everything. I see what you're saying, but everything else in this world seems to have something dominant, you know, clothing, foods, diets, housing styles, kitchen appliances, furniture. There's always a focus style that everybody wants to have and strives to have. And it's always been that way in the car culture up until 15 years ago, 10 years ago. And I don't understand why it's so diverse. Now, maybe it's a great thing that it is so diverse and everybody can have their own thing. I just find it very, very odd that there isn't one over-the-top style that just dominates car culture across the board. We can get into the super wealthy and it's the limited production, whatever supercar, or everybody wants to be, have a singer Porsche or be the company that is building the next singer style automobile. I think there's one company out there now doing it with, I can't remember, Mercedes or Lamborghinis or something, trying to singerize a Lamborghini. 35 to 50 year olds and we're just all happy with our suvs and we don't really do anything and if it's not out of the dealer catalog we don't do anything with the car the kids don't do anything because again like i've said i think they do everything on the computer and then they want what's on their video games maybe it's the jdm market maybe that's the the thing right now is the you know jdm stuff i don't know i just jdm's pretty big right now i'll, I'll give them that I just don't see this big core focus anymore. I'm not saying it's bad. I'm not saying it's wrong. My purpose behind the show is, and email us at uh, producer at nodrivinggloves.com and give me my answer. What is the dominant car style right now? What is the in thing? If I, want, if, I, if I had a middle class budget, whatever that be for a car, what should I do to be the most hip and in with my vehicle? Should I have a sport compact? Should I have a um, tuned BMW? Should I have, you know, the baddest challenger on the market? Should I be buying something electric? Uh, I mean, what what is it? There's just so much to choose from. And while there's always been a plethora of things to choose from, you know, lifted trucks have been around since the first Bigfoot was built as Bob Chandler's promo vehicle in 73 or 74. Hot rods have been around since really the first two cars pulled up to a stoplight at the same time. There's always been something that is a little bit more in than everything else. And right now, I don't think there's an in. And I either want to know what it is or why isn't there. That's the whole idea behind my topic for this episode. And can I, can, can I propose a part two to that question? Yes. Which is going to be, what is the next fad? And I'm going I'm to, I've been reading a lot of articles coming out lately, and I'm going to not propose the question, what is the next fad, but is the next fad converting classic cars, be it whatever age, classic, antique, anything like that, but is the next fad converting classic cars to becoming electric vehicles? 
because there's a lot of people getting on board with the idea of doing this. There's been a lot of articles in the news lately, automotive news lately, about a couple big names starting to do this, which is going to drive the fad forward, I think. <clears throat> now, I don't think I'm a fan of the fad. I will say that. And that not not just because I enjoy classic vehicles with internal combustion engines and, and of course, my antique vehicles with it, but it's more... <sighs> I think we had a little bit of this conversation uh, back on an episode with Will, but to me, converting these vehicles over from their original internal combustion engines over to electric is just, you're losing the historic nature of the vehicle. Uh, To me, it's just, uh, that's why I'm not a big fan of it. But I'm really wondering if that's going to be the next big thing. Is the next big thing going to be making these older vehicles into EVs? I think the answer to your question is kind of yes, but that's not going to be something a 16-year-old is going to be able to do. Really? Are you sure about that? Because, I mean, there's there's companies already coming out. I mean, GM's looking at bringing out that basically crate electric motor well, that bolts into things. I mean, it's like buying a crate, crate you know, V8 engine and, and mounting it. All you got to do, it's the same thing. You just got to build the, the motor mounts and and now we can actually call them motor mounts because it's an electric motor, uh, you know. And I mean, it's it's not that much different from internal combustion work. And and you got to admit, kid, the younger generations these days are way more up on electronics than than you or I, John, or at least than I. I mean, electronics to me are still there's some that I'm. I think it's I though more this. of a financial barrier. Yeah, we've got these motors and such, but you didn't see. You know, kids rushing out and doing 572 swaps when they were 16 years old, unless for some crazy reason they happen to have a, a sponsor. It's these electric conversions are being done by wealthier people. I don't see it being a garage thing where you're going right to take now, <clears throat> right you're going to take your old Chevy Beretta, you know, GTU and all this mint drop out the drivetrain, slide in an electric motor, put all the controllers and inverters and everything, and then make the dashboard work, come up with your electric power steering and your new braking system, your new power brake system. And I don't see it being, I see it being something that is going to become more popular. I just don't see it being a garage build. Yes, the kids are more intelligent. But there's still a financial factor behind it. There is. There is. It kind of goes back to what you were talking about. If we if we continue to legislate out the internal combustion engine and the ability to drive one on the road, then people that are interested in cars and the older cars, younger kids, they're going to start finding ways to make it happen. I, I, and yeah, I'm not saying it's going to start tomorrow or it's going to it's going to become the fad tomorrow. But is it the next one we're sli- slowly sliding into where as the prices of these things come down, uh, you know, aftermarket, you know, drop in kits? I mean, I got to imagine the aftermarket world is already working on, like you say, John, computers that will just bolt into place, dashboards that will you know, bolt into place and and be basically plug and play, uh, you know, because I think it's the next thing. It's, you know, why not head that way? Because it's where it looks like everything's going. Like I say, I don't disagree with you that we're going that way. I just think the financial barrier is going to keep this from becoming a mainstream like we've seen in the past, because what's driven this stuff in the past the hot rods of the 50s, the muscle cars of the 60s, the vans of the 70s, the mini trucks of the 80s, the sport compacts of the 90s, they were affordable. And it didn't take a lot of money to get into that hobby. And that's, I guess, does that exist anymore? Well, that's true. Hardly. Any. But I was going to throw out while you were talking about all this electric car conversion and that there is a new show on Max, which I really hate the name because if you Google Max, you get so many other things. But it used to be HBO Max, called um, uh, Downey's Rides. It's it's basically a show about Robert Downey Jr., and he's got a car collection, and he feels so bad because he's so green now, he's having his stuff converted to electric, and I just... 
and not I wasn't going to throw out names, but not only Robert Downey Jr., but uh, Tim Allen's doing it with some of his collection now. Well, it is, you know, it's a big thing. And to be honest, Will threw it out before it was even in the, the news is converting something. I think it's very viable. There are some companies that are doing tons of work with it. Uh, there's a lot of, a, to be honest, I probably would rather have an electric Porsche 356 than a standard because cool car, be a real car, but I don't have to deal. I can get in, I can turn it on and I can drive. I don't have to worry about any of the mechanical issues. There's a huge thing to be said about that. But, but if, your um, point's very about, I mean, your point's very valid, Derek. It's just like taking a well, take a fifty five Chrysler three hundred B and taking the Hemi out and dropping a Hellcat Hemi in. It's we there's so many people against that. Is it any different dropping two Tesla motors in it? Right. Right. But you just said something too, John. You know, you said, well, uh, an electric 356 Porsche and, you know, you can get in and go without mechanical issues. But I mean, what about electronic issues? <laughs> I mean, you know, putting more and more electronics in things and yeah, electronics and computers are getting better and better by the day. But, you know, are we just trading off mechanical for electronic issues? Right. That is. No, electronics never go bad. Oh, all right. I'll remember that. They just didn't put a new uh, TCU in my Ford. I don't know what. I don't know. My whole keyboard tree started to vibrate. Earthquake. And I've got nothing on it that vibrates. But like I said, you know, they just had to put a new electronic device in my Ford. And that's what I've always said. The things that break in modern cars now are electrics, not not the mechanical. Physical pieces were fine. The clutch plates, everything. But the computer that controls the dual clutch or it's a single clutch semi-automatic or whatever in that car, um, failed. And I was told, you know, I knew there was a transmission issue with this car. And when they redesigned the transmission control module or uh, transmission control unit, whatever you want to call it, in 2017, all the transmission problems went away. And these cars after 2017 don't have this issue. And once this new computer goes in, you're not supposed to have transmission issues. Well, we'll see. I knew, like I said, I knew going into when I bought the car, I figured it would have to be done. And it was done. It's covered actually under recall, not under warranty. It's just one of those recalls that they won't perform until it fails. You know, it almost tra- stranded me 80 miles from home. I guess that's all I'll say. You have my questions. I was going to say, I think, yeah, we've covered part of the history of automotive fads. And now we're at the point of what's going on right now and what's next. Like I said, let us know if you've got an opinion on that at producer at nodrivinggloves.com. Check out our website at nodrivinggloves.com. All the links to subscribe to the show or follow the show, whatever term you wish to use. Um, Of course, we're available on all the the major platforms. I could care less if you give us a review because it really doesn't affect us in any way and nobody pays attention to those at this point in time. So again, no driving gloves. We also do have our little catalog there of uh, car products that Derek and I recommend. And until next week, I think I'm going to be out of here. I'm going out to the shop to work on something. Should I just start saying happy motoring? Who says happy motoring? Somebody else. Isn't that Dennis Gage? Yes. Does Dennis Gage still have a show? I have to look up Dennis and see what he's up to. I think he's all on the internet now. Yeah, I think that's just the way I actually was looking up Peter Clute earlier this morning, and I think he's all internet. Oh, Peter, good guy. I I knew him for a little, did some stuff with him for a little while. I've met him a few times. Be interested to have him. I think his kid Gary has a YouTube show, too. Yeah, probably. But I'm just going to start ending by saying I'm going to work on a car. This show was a part of the No Driving Gloves Network, produced and edited by John Viviani of Magic City Podcast, with voice work by Gary Conger. So until the next exit.